I am John Krieger. I am currently and have been for maybe 22 years a faculty member at Ohio Wesleyan University. Uh, it is a bit north of Columbus, Ohio, uh, but I do live in Columbus, Ohio. Geography is uh, important to me because I am an academic geographer. And even uh, local. I mean, you, you're also interested in local geography. Uh, of course. I mean, that's the nice thing about being a geographer is you walk outside and there's really cool stuff all around. And that <laughs> yeah. certainly leads from uh, just being engaged in community efforts, but also just digging up community history, learning odd things about what seems to be sort of a straightforward place. Uh, so, yeah, the good thing about geography is it is maybe it selects for, but at least it does seem to also make people open to the ability to do a lot of different things. It is not a very disciplined discipline at all. Uh, so, yeah, that's my academic life, but uh, certainly it's geography and the way that geography is sort of uh, situated lets you do a whole lot of different things and sort of call them academic. <laughs> uh, which includes the book, you know, the interest in books, certainly academics are book people, or at least they have been. Uh, we have retiring faculty who have so many books and what in the world you do with uh, literally a ton of books that are maybe largely out of date, older textbooks, reports, yeah. journals in a digital world. So uh, higher education is littered with uh, littered with books and sort of right, what they represent, I think, which is a core issue of of being in higher education. So I want to, that's so interesting that you brought up that thing about people retiring, because I was just talking about professors' books recently. And my experience with walking into professors' offices, at least, was these are all the books they get sent because this is their niche specialty. And these are all the books that they collected during their trajectory into this degree. But I very seldom when I walk into a professor's office and see a wide variety of books. They would always be nestled into their specialty. And I always wondered, does this reflect their whole library? Or if I went back to their house, would they have a truly diverse thing of many interests? Or do they just love one thing? So if you think about these professors that retired, does it usually seem like it's all nestled in their college specialty? Or do they seem very diverse? I do think that varies a lot from discipline to discipline. Okay. Uh, I have found science people because maybe a little bit, they tend to be seen as locked into very specific specialties, uh, tend to have maybe a little narrower range of things in their office, whereas a English faculty member or kind of in, maybe some of these interdivisional programs tend to be a little bit broader, but also I've been to enough homes where when you get out of the office uh, and into their home, there's a much greater diversity of books as if, okay. again, there's a, it's symbolic or maybe it's just their work stuff. It's like the stuff their spouse yeah. can't let them have at home. <laughs> but I do think there's something about what faculty offices look like that is very important to sort of cultivating the identity of a faculty member, right? They, they like a lot of people, want their offices to sort of represent who they are. Yeah. So thus, I think you see these collections, particularly from offices, uh, where they are very specialized because that's what they want to portray, that they are an expert in a specialist area, which is often what is required of you if you are in uh, higher education. You're not supposed to be a dilettante and, Dipping all over the place, unless you're a geographer. So, um, yeah. Is there is there something about, is it your impression that not just at your school or your experience in undergrad and then grad stuff, but that geography kind of everywhere is kind of very open to much more diversity than it feels like maybe some of the other degrees and some of the other disciplines are? The way I've thought about it, I mean, I, yeah. I ended up in geography after being in philosophy and political science. And then I got sort of, uh, the philosophy got so intense that I was, I don't know, waking up in a, a, a state of what, torpor? No, I don't know what it was. It was like, I felt like my brain was melting down and it wasn't a bad thing, but I did, I got a job uh, on UW-Madison where I was doing my undergrad at the cartographic lab making maps. And yeah. it felt like, I had to get out of my head and then focus on something more tangible uh, to balance my life out. 
And that's sort of how I wandered into geography through the mapping end of things. Uh, but geography is an older discipline. We tend to think of these things like sociology and psychology and zoology as being uh, what? It's like they've been around, they've been there forever. And that that's not true. Right? Right. The, the higher education, these categories go back hundreds of years, but not thousands. And you can put previous uh, scholars, previous research into these categories, these more modern categories. Geography is weird because it falls across the physical sciences and the social sciences. And therefore, I do think it's a little more um, diverse because mm -hmm. you have as a colleague, my colleague is a glaciologist. Yeah. Uh, and I have a background in mapping and cartography and geographic information systems, but also environmental geography and historical geography. So geographers tend to be a little more tolerant of diversity within a discipline. Uh, it's why they tend to make really, they tend to make pretty good administrators. Uh, they're able because of their own disciplinary or disciplinary experience to sort of accept that there is this diversity out there and work with it. So I do think geography of the traditional disciplines is does have that diversity uh, that other disciplines do seem to often lack. So did your if if part of the reason you kind of I don't know you got kind of centered in the physicality of making these maps were these new maps and then now do you find yourself both loving whatever new things but are you also a huge fan of older and older maps like how how do maps play into your interest in maps how does that play into all your stuff. That was all, I, you know, I think I did have a sense when I started making uh, making maps and they were literally new, new, new maps. And this I'm old enough that when I started, it was mechanical pens and oh, wow. uh, scribers okay. and all that. I mastered those things. I think I got that side. My mom was a graphic designer. Um, and I think I got sort of that visual sense, but also the use of the tools and things just yeah. growing up and always puttering with these. Uh, but I, I would say that I started off with the tangible creation of maps, which in first I was just thinking, oh, yeah, I'm just right drawing out reality. But right away, it became clear I wasn't just drawing reality uh, on a piece of mylar and then subsequently on computers as I worked with say faculty who mm -hmm. were trying to get some maps put together for a publication. And I started to see the politics of say getting tenure at a place like University of Wisconsin-Madison, the way that then played out with the projects they were involved in the way that they would freak out because it didn't look the way they wanted it to, this needed to be, and can you adjust that? Or that area doesn't look right to me. And it's like, okay. well, it's, you know, I got it from a, from a, a, so in many ways, right, it's that social creation of some kind of reality. And that resonated with my advisor, uh, working with my advisor, whose name was David Woodward. And he and Brian Harley were the two editors of this massive history of cartography project. Mm -hmm. This was published from like 97. They're still, I think there's just finished up the last, like the eighth or ninth volume. And they're both gone, but, but he was a historian very much into the history of map making tools and engraving and all that. But he was also along with Brian Harley, they were very much into the whole social context. So I would say that I got very interested in how maps and mapping and other visual types of, of I don't know if I want to call them representations. I'm not really sure they're a very good representation, but inscriptions or graphic or visual materials, uh, how they played out in politics and culture and history. So I dove into non-Western mapping. Mm -hmm. uh, I dove into the sort of the history of how terrain is represented. So I, I, I have an interest in history. You always have to look at history, but I'm not the final maps I've known kind of slide set person who wants to go through the whole history of all these beautiful old maps. I'm more okay. interested in sort of the weird mundane stuff at 
the edges that seem significant in some way, be it non-Western mapping or like the first sort of, we're so used to seeing maps of terrain. Uh, I, as a, on my master's project, I looked at the first terrain map of the Grand Canyon. Yeah. And just the bizarre way it was sort of created and the context it was created in the very sort of pre-Civil War. So I would say the key here is more maps led me into, um, after personally experiencing sort of the social creation of, of, of maps, led me into the broader area of social aspects of mapping and cartography and geographic information systems and geospatial. And that's sort of been my thing um, as far as publications and stuff uh, goes. So it's a weird thing where you're looking at a map and everybody thinks it's just a map of somewhere, but right. then you're like, okay, there's this huge story to tell here. This is not reality. Uh, and once people sort of see that, uh, I don't know, it's kind of interesting to see them sort of think a little bit more about why did I assume these were just objective images of the real world? Wait, okay, so then I have a, you know, you talked about when you came into it, you were physically drawing maps, which obviously that yep. still happens. But now people's primary thing with maps are not even things that are drawn, like say in California, I grew up with the Thomas Brothers maps. Now we all grow up with the maps on our smartphones. Now, when you look at those as a cartographer, does that, is that, how does that fit in there? And is that a representation? Is that a proper representation of how the world looks, given the fact that we're using these online maps all the time now? Um, no, it's no different than the past. They look okay. somewhat different. Uh, you, know, you can look at Google Maps and it looks reasonable. You look yeah. at it and you can see your street and you can see the streets around you. And if you want to go buy a, you know, a new mattress, you can plop in mattress and right. But when you think about it, right, it's, it's a, um, it, it's really a map. It's, I think of it as like a bunch of tubes for going around and buying stuff. <laughs> uh, well, well, which is what it is. It looks like plumbing. Yeah. you were talking about your, you know, um, working in the, you know, sewer system and the way that all functions this is also sort of a system of tubes and the point with buying stuff like what what is what pops up uh advertisers stores right. restaurants uh and then if you pay more you can have your uh establishment appear at a, a zoom level that's further out so if yeah. you pay google some money if you're an advertiser with them when somebody looks at an area, say Columbus, they'll see certain restaurants, and those are typically restaurants that are advertising with Google. So again, the content, what you're seeing, uh, the tubes for driving around, I mean, you know, you can walk, and it does have the ability to plot out like what it would take to walk between right, locations, right. but it doesn't show trails or sidewalks. Uh, if there's bike trails, sometimes they're included but it's really a car centric, consumer society centric uh, concoction. Uh, and you can make maps that are very exceedingly different from that. Uh, you can make maps as a pedestrian in a moderately busy area. Uh, if, we, if you collect the right data, uh, you can collect things like anxiety. So put a galvanic skin response device on but you can buy these things for what biofeedback and all that but walk yeah. around and map out what stresses you out as you're walking and <laughs> where do you calm down and the thing is you'll probably stress out around those tubes that are made for going out and buying stuff yeah right it's where you know traffic and cars buzzing by so there's a whole different world there of say a pedestrian uh or a biker uh that could be mapped out we just don't do that. There's no particular way at this point for somebody to make a whole lot of money off of that, I guess. So again, the, the kind of mapping we do always is reflecting some social, some social context that hasn't changed. But it is, it makes me think about because I, so I go on to Google Maps a lot, and I sort of zoom in and out to try to get to look for new parks I haven't been to. You try to zoom in and out and look for things that Google Maps might mark as green. So you just, I will literally just browse the map looking for green, but it's not very reliable. It'll come, it'll disappear in and out depending on what Google wants to show me. 
So it's hard yeah. to find it that way. I think people have this also romantic notion when, so we think of Google maps and then on the other side, we have these old maps, either old countries or old places where we hadn't fully explored or hadn't got a feel for the terrain yet. Or like you're talking about a map that literally shows you quote unquote, how to find the buried treasure or a map that shows you what it's like to walk from one town to another and how here's the spot where you need to notice the tree. And it's all marked at the pedestrian level. Do you think all that pedestrian stuff really in our car centered world is all dead? Or do you think, oh, that could bubble back up or I could see a way in which people might turn back to pedestrian maps? There's been, a, um, again, maybe it's my tendency to find things that seem like they're at the margins that raise <laughs> yeah. important issues. And the, the books are sort of like that in a way um, that I picked up. But I, I think the idea is that there are alternatives, even though they are largely in the shadows. Yeah. They are the kind of thing that people won't do in part because they don't seem to be the kind of things that maps are supposed to do. So there's been a long tradition of what, I mean, lots of different names, but like counter cartography. This is often in a more political context, say mm -hmm. in Central America, South America, this arose with uh, indigenous and other local groups sort of creating maps that countered the the maps created by whoever was there, uh, colonial powers uh, originally, but certainly up to now, maybe more big government programs, often in the context of collaboration with big corporations. So creating a different map to counter their map. So, so that's, there's a big tradition of that. There are psychogeography maps, which are all sorts of weird ways of playing with geography and maps that get you to either engage more with the environment in a different way, or the flip side is try to show you different aspects of the world mapped out. So sound mapping, a lot of sensory mapping and emotional mapping fills into, you know, falls into that. So these, these are maybe on the margins as far as maps go maps are just most people think of google maps or whatever the current you know regime right. is uh but but all those alternatives and they don't it's not like i mean there are a lot of different alternatives and they're not really limited they do exist out there and there's a lot of groups that uh engage in it and what popped into my head was the fantasy mapping crowd and I, i'm not much of a fantasy world person yeah. Um, but uh, it's like the Cartographers Guild, I think, is uh, a site of thousands of people who make fantasy maps of whatever. Um, it can come out of yeah, Dungeons and Dragons, but a lot of times it, it's more they're, they're imagining places that don't exist. But then when you look at them, they sort of do exist because either they've somebody's read, you know, Lord of the Rings and right? It's got the kind of things that um, you would think a map of some kind of fantasy territory has. Yeah. Uh, some of them are really good. Others are very much limited by the fact that we have a very narrow sense of what a, what a map is. So they tend to be showing mountains and trees. It tends to be a rural kind of fantasy world. It tends to be a, sort of a global north, more um, northern kind of territories and cl climates like there's there's very few say rainforest fantasy maps it, it's yeah again all part even made up maps have all these social you could do anything yet people do a very specific thing but to answer your question uh i, I think there's always been interest in that there are people there's a whole hand-drawn map society um i forget it's, there's been several of these that sort of arose as nobody drew maps by hand and that sort of developed into this fantasy map world where the ultimate are those uh cartographers who make their fantasy maps with quill pens and <laughs> you know lots of blood or i don't know what they're doing right right but it's that reaction against modern mapping so i think that will always be there is there okay let me ask you do you find it at all so you are you're um you're very complimentary about it. I've seen a lot 
I, I have to go to this website now because I want to see more. Fantasy maps are, I feel like I've been um, sort of drenched in that because I played RPGs as a, as a teenager and sort of all the way through, I saw a lot of those kinds of maps in the fronts of books and um, I thought those were neat. And then it does disappoint me to hear that even the people who are spending the, like spending a lot of time on drawing these maps, they sort of have to not be in the world. Like they're making their maps not of the world. Like the world has been sort of taken over by the the, the money tubes moving the cars around. And so that's maybe that's where I was trying. I wonder if there, it sounds like there are people out there who kind of make counter cartography. And in that case, maybe they're pushing against whatever they see as a dominant society and forcing people to think about the space this way. But I don't know if you think that, are there people out there making really counter this counter cartography stuff of real world, real places, but thinking about it, I guess, from some counterculture perspective. Yeah, there's a um, a series of uh, books that are published. It's called uh, Atlas of Design. Ooh. It's put together by this organization called NACIS, N-A-C-I-S. Uh, I was involved in this organization for quite a while. It, it started off as map librarians, and then it sort of evolved into people who continue to make maps maybe um as freelancers as professionals who work like for the new york times or washington post or national mm -hmm. geographic so it really evolved into a practitioner's uh, organization and this atlas of design i just did the um reviewed the entries for their 2021 edition which is going to be published sometime um in the next few months and there's some dingers in there, but there's actually some spectacular stuff where people are working with a um, real context and just doing really innovative, interesting stuff. There's a, um, if you Google it, there's a rap map of Atlanta. And I wish I remembered uh, who, you know, the folks who put this together, but it gives you a sense of the kind of thing you can do with sort of creative, non-tube mapping yeah uh and the amount of information the visual appeal uh i, I don't know there, there, there's lots of people doing that and that atlas of design which i think there's probably been about six or seven volumes of that okay it'll capture a lot of this kind of work whether it's professional whether it's sort of they put it together and sell it no one's making gobs of money selling um maps <laughs> right. but a lot of these are passion projects of individuals um so i think that's a good i kind of like that bunch more than say i'm not to dismiss the fantasy mapping the fantasy mapping tends to fall into its own little trap whereas i think these folks that do have some interest in expressing something about the world uh that's tangible and tied into social situations or environmental situations uh, when you get some really rich data and information and then think about how to not make it look like a google map um, yeah. i think there's some really cool stuff that um, is out there and this nasus is the best organization for that kind of um that that kind of focus particularly here in the u.s do you ever, when I think of old maps also, I just heard somebody talk about this, you know, there's that spot where the map drops off on these old maps where, you know, they'll say something along the lines of something being unknown or here there be monsters. We don't know. Out here is where we, that's the boundaries. Is there a sense in which, do people have a, an impression now with maps that we have mapped everything. We have complete mastery of the terrain and all the geography of the planet now. We know where everything is. We could see it with satellites. Is there something, it, it, does that feel different? If you've looked through the history of cartography, was there a point at which in recent memory where that kind of switched, where now people just think we have total map mastery and maps will, I have access to all the maps of all the terrain. I can know where anything is at all times. That's a common, um, sort of a common response. If you if you let somebody know you're involved in uh, in mapping and cartography, well, haven't all the maps been made? Isn't <laughs> right. right. This sense, this sense that there's a um, like when you're at uh, on Google Maps, as you zoom in, you get more and more and more detail. We have mm -hmm. this sense that there's this huge database, and we just sort of zoom in and out of it. Uh, and I think a lot of stuff has been mapped, particularly with satellites uh, pulling in data. 
we have a much more, say, comprehensive set of data that covers the entire Earth. I think that whole concept of mapping, if you look at sort of the history of mapping, that, that maybe emerged in the West, probably around 1500, uh, as sort of global exploration and colonialism yeah. kicked in. It's, it's primarily, it was a tool of, of commerce and colonies. And I think at that point in the West, in a lot of places, uh, this also happened in, uh, with the Islamic empire, um, the you know, Chinese empires, even earlier on, it seems that mapping becomes a tool for gathering strategic and commercial information. Yeah. So that said, the vast majority of people in 1500 had no sense of, I don't think they thought about the world map in a map-like way. Uh, it wasn't that, right, the earth was flat and you'd sail off the end. It was more just not a, um, not a way of thinking about the world. Uh, you had to learn that sort of comprehensive worldview by looking at maps of the world uh, in their entirety. And then of course, flattened out maps of the world, which is a mm -hmm. very weird abstraction. Uh, and we become naturalized to that. So I do think what mapping did, and again, mapping as a product of, of colonization, of Western sort of expansion, is it gave us, it framed the world, and then it filled that in and gave us that sense of we've mapped everything. Uh, it's not true because first of all, stuff changes all the time. Yeah. So even if you're talking about the Google map thing, think of the fact that there are thousands or more people buzzing around in little cars, trying to keep up with the changes in the tube system around the right. world. So, right, there's always the need to keep things updated. When you get in the world of environment, things are changing so fast that we can barely keep up with it. We can map a lot of things having to do with temperature and weather and uh, coastal conditions and, and uh, all those things, and we do. Uh, but that's, right, the, the world is a dynamic uh, place. And then I would say the other point is just what we were talking about earlier that there are lots of aspects of reality, uh, whether they are sensory, whether they are uh, emotional, the things we were talking about that you can do that we just don't do. So you can always map something weird, uh, weird in a good sense of just something that's not normal. Uh, so yeah, a long way around to make the point that, uh, you know, it is a very dynamic process, but I do think there's a reason that we as a sort of a Western society have been given a frame and convinced that it's been filled in and everything's known. Uh, I don't know why that is, but people seem to just know that inherently. And it's certainly a modern way of thinking about the world. Do you have, it's, I, you're very uh, nuanced and even about your kind of exploration thinking about it. I'm not quite sure why it's like that. Do you, are you, are you frustrated at all that you think people maybe have a, a misperception of how controlled the world is because we all, it's now kind of, at least I feel like in the culture I grew up, the culture, exactly what you said, the cultural touchstone is the maps have shown us where everything is. And that makes me feel good. It makes, it gives you certainty. It gives you stability. And as you say, that's a false stability. The world's changing all the time. Those maps you had are not accurate. I mean, are not accurate. I had the impression with, again, street maps in California, California grew so much. Your street maps would, you'd have this old thing in the back of your car, that big Thomas brothers map. And yeah. it, it would still mostly be correct for many, many years. But of course, at the edges of the, of the, of the urban Metroplex, it would not be accurate every year. It would not be accurate about those streets. Do you think it, yeah. how do you feel about the fact that people seem to have the impression that, Oh, maps are done. We've mapped it all. I, I think, like you said, uh, it goes hand in hand with a sense of maps are reality and yeah. we've captured reality. Uh, it also makes you sort of, I don't know if subservient is the right word, but very docile in the face of a map that tells you to do something. 
uh, <laughs> your behavior is sort of guided by maps. I mean, the, the sense that maps have some, even though they're not uh, biological, they seem to have a strong sense of their own, I don't know, agency. They make you do things, uh, yeah. you know, people who will follow their phone telling them to take a right uh, when that right goes into a river or onto a railroad track. And, uh, you know, I can just, you can see him clunk, 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 driving down the railroad track. And it, 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 for at least for a lot longer than you'd expect, it seems to take people to come out of that, that world of, well, wait a minute, I just followed what it told me to do. And I'm sitting on a railroad track. Um, but also every, you know, school district maps. Um, I know, you know, here in Columbus, yeah, they're weird because there's all sorts of areas of the city of Columbus that have agreements with suburban school districts. So you may live in the city of Columbus, but your kids go to uh, Worthington School. And of course, that's one of these key issues is if you have kids, you have to pick the right place. Yes. Uh, right. And so you, you are choosing what you do based on lines drawn on some map and of course things like redistricting which i've told multiple people i don't want to talk about it at all but it is a prime <laughs> example of right where we're redrawing maps for political purposes and it's a weird situation because again they still maps will still have this sense of being just a, a picture of reality yeah when they are creating that reality so one could argue that there's some kind of nefarious purpose behind this, uh, that it, uh, the sense of mapping that we typically have uh, sort of makes us behave and do things that are of interest to other people. So you let me uh, start off this entire conversation. Make I made you talk about your main daytime job. But of course, the reason I stumbled into you is because I was reading a set of old books. And for some reason, I went hunting online for old books. And I found a website you have of has to be the largest collection of sort of trying to collect the series of this thing that to me was, I think my dad bought a ton of them before I was born and they were always on the shelves and I, they always had an allure. It's the sets of classics. So whether it's like the Harvard classics or the sets of novels from so-and-so, tell me about this website and why you started looking at these old collections of classics and reprints and things like that. I think that does fall into uh, maybe a similar category as maps uh, in that, they, in some ways, books are kind of mundane. Uh, I mean, it's not to argue that their content or what they inspire is by any means mundane, but they are objects, uh, whether, you know, digital in some ways with both maps and books, mm -hmm. I don't know, has changed a, a lot. But I think uh, the whole idea of books sort of being central to an intellectual world. I think that's the reason you're, um, you know, your dad was probably purchasing them. It was. Uh, a, lot very... of, a lot of people bought them and didn't read them. So that's interesting in and of itself. There was a, yes. certainly what publishers understood is that they could get people to feel like I should be reading some, some of these Correct. quote unquote right. classics. And then, well, oh my God, there's, you know, 300 of them. So I better buy some more because more must be better. So, there, there, you know, there's a marketing aspect to that. But the flip side is I think people are buying them for a very good, um, a very good reason. Yeah. So I, I think I've stumbled into it because I just, I grew up with not a whole lot of books, books around the house. Uh, and I kind of read through all of them and it was a weird subset of, I don't know how my parents picked this like one bookshelf of random things. I mean, they read, <laughs> but somehow we just never had many books around. So yeah. when I kind of realized that you could actually own a book, uh, which was probably not until I was in college uh, and I was at Madison. So there's lots of used bookstores. Okay. I started buying more books. And part of that was I bought stuff for my own 
interest and research, but then I like saw the modern library books on the shelf and they were cheap and they were hardcovers and yeah. they were a certain size, which has always appealed to me. They weren't the full size big books. Uh, they were a little bit smaller. And then they had some consistencies in the way that they were designed that same thing. I looked at them and there's something that stood out. Are those uh, the ones, like are the modern libraries the ones that are green or greenish gold? Yeah, they, they, they went through a lot of different design. Okay. Uh, but design they were phases. coherent. So just like they you said, there was a set during, that looked good when you put yeah. it on the shelf. Yeah. If you took the dust jackets off, which now makes me gasp and horror. But if you did that, because I'm right, once you get obsessed about the books, then you right. get obsessed about the paper wrapped around them. Uh, you could take the dust jackets off and they were very uniform. They mm -hmm. had some uniform design on the dust jackets, but that needed also to serve as advertising. Yeah. So while there was an appeal to the stark sort of universal design of the book itself, they needed to deal with and focus on the design of the paper jacket as a way to get people to pick it up. Um, so I, I, it was literally, I saw them on the shelves. I remember, oh yeah, I read Crime and Punishment in high school and thought that was okay. Maybe I should read it again. And then before you know it, I was in the collect them all mode um, because they were cheap and I liked right. wandering around looking at books. They they would be three, you know, two, three, four dollars. They, they're, they're not for many years, they were not seen as collectible. Right. Uh, so they're easy to start accumulating. And then, right, you get this symbol of people walk into your, you know, your dorm room or your apartment or whatever. And they're supposed to be, you know, they see all these books and they look very <laughs> carefully selected. And of course, they're going to think, oh, what a smart person, you know, the owner of those books must be. So, right, there's identity things in them. Uh, but again it's that whatever that is that little um z -z 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 that draws you to an object and yeah uh certainly you've talked to different people uh i think what people do kind of sometimes is object focused right this, if they're really into it i've got a neighbor who was an english high school teacher uh but now he's a mechanic and he looks at an engine and i just see his his eyes just light up right <laughs> and then he pops the trunk and i have a inherited old mercedes that has all this like octopus in it of of vacuum pressure things hissing and popping and he took the whole thing out it looked like he was wrestling with this this octopus and his eyes you could it was just like this thing ran like it runs like 60 different things in the car and it had sort of burnt out so he was just so whatever it is, that little with objects um, and books can be one of those. And, you know, the story is you start off with I started with one series, a modern library, and then they're a certain size. Yes. I do tell people when they come in, I go, well, I collect books of a certain size, which when you look at the wall, they, they, they <laughs> do look like they're mostly all the same size. Uh, but then when you're looking for books of a certain size at a bookstore, you and it's modern library. Uh, which is you know us random house uh you then start to see everman's library which is british yeah. and you go oh well seems to be a very different kind of series uh it has all these like really you know stodgy in a good way old school kind of um literature and uh I, I don't know i had a different feel so i started picking them up because i felt like okay if i'm buying a sort of this set of classics yes yeah. missing some things here's another series that has different kinds of classics and uh so it's the obsession with books of a certain size but then these collections that are supposed to represent what right you say classics yeah uh that's a contentious sort of uh idea and certainly when you look at these series and the, the website is I'm, I'm getting close to 500 series. The website just shows the series I have at least one book from. Uh, I've got probably another 500 that I know of. And I, you know, I still look. And if I find one in a series I don't have, I buy it and I put mm -hmm. together a page. But here are 500 plus uh, examples of 
series that are by and large supposed to be some kind of meaningful collection, whether they be classics, you know, broadly defined or contemporary classics, they're all yeah. reprints. So they're books that were printed originally, published, and then republished in these series. Somehow that seems significant to me that there were so many different takes on this idea of what is a series of of classics. And that's what the website really ends up showing is all the sort of weird connections between publishers and plates and copyright and all the things that I haven't really put my finger on. Mm -hmm. But it opens up this whole world of what is really kind of mundane, which is, oh yeah, a bunch of classic reprints. All of a sudden it's sort of uh, insight into sort of what was going on with the book industry and public literacy throughout, you know, a hundred years and what drove people to buy these things. And uh, I don't know, it, it, it is one of those things that seems interesting, like it's meaningful. And that's why I put the website together sort of, well, look, I got all this stuff. Mm -hmm. uh, and the hope is literally that the website is on my, um, what I call my dead list, which is when I'm dead, I don't want to leave this horde of books to, <laughs> let's say I got hit by one of those, you know, a car or whatever. Yeah. It's like, I can imagine they're going to say, well, leave them around for a while, but then let's just give them to Goodwill or something like that. It felt like I needed to preserve it. So that website is really a representation of a collection uh rather than an attempt at a comprehensive this is every single classic series in the world is they only feature the ones that i have copies of but the hope is that maybe the right every collector hopes that their precious collection somebody <laughs> will want it yale library has requested <laughs> that you know for the princely sum of ten thousand dollars you know you turn over your collection to most collections don't end up being anything anybody wants. They get broken up and redistributed. So yeah. um, this was an attempt to maybe show why you might want to keep this together with all that. Talk about, you know, what people do. I mean, it's a lot of labor, um, but it's a useful, it's useful that that information is out there. And the website really was about, okay, there's stuff out there for a couple of these series, but most of them know. So why not put some information that I've sort of figured out just for fun, make it available. And I do get, you know, contacted by people who either are blown away by just the sheer weird, you know, sense of all these series and why would you do this? Yeah, because they're, to, as you know, they are generally disregard. I mean, you could go to any thrift store and any used bookstore in America and find one example of one of these reprint series, but probably the most common ones, not the less. So they're everywhere. They're just completely in the brain. I think people, unless they're looking for that particular volume, they're just, dis the, the power of all those series together, it's just dismissed. Yeah, it's, it's a, you know, books uh, are often very ephemeral. Uh, there is a sort of collector's world of which these series are not of much interest because they're not first editions. Right. Uh, so you can't sell them as a first edition of uh, There's a little bit, if you have a very collectible author uh, and you can't, like I've got, there's a bunch of catchers in the rye here, first editions in the modern library. Well, if you can't afford the first edition of catcher in the rye, you can get the first modern library edition okay. for significantly less, right? So there is a sense of book, objects and those that rise to the level of collectability. I do think this subset of these book series is things that you probably shouldn't collect. <laughs> it just seems like they really were designed to be sort of throwaway yeah. kinds of things and certainly be getting the paperbacks even more so. Yeah, that was the part. Um, they're still leftover paperbacks, again, from those collections of, and it's interesting I think there are periods where science and history was included much more. Now, I think just fiction gets kind of shoved. Fiction, mythology, literature 
gets shoved into the collections. But there's also some of these collections that include a lot of what we would think of as nonfiction separate. And a lot of times they're these old science books from the 40s and 30s, 40s and 50s. And if they're, yeah, if they're paperbacks, they're just yellowed pages. The font is so small. Who was reading some of this stuff? It's almost, again, you almost look at it as a reader and you're like, I'm not sure this was meant to be read. This was meant to be displayed on your shelf to show that you had all these science books. I don't know who read this. Yeah, and I think right, that part of a consumer society is if you're a publisher and you have to sell books, uh, you run through, you publish a bunch of books, first editions, they go out. You hope right. that libraries buy copies uh, because that you make a lot of money there. Maybe it'll be a bestseller, but maybe not. And then uh one thing about looking at these series i've learned is that a lot of the books in the series are um think of publish a book title as sort of falling down the stairs of uh sort of you start off with that first publication and the okay. price right and then after a couple of years well if it's not a book that you would do another edition of as far as like a new revised edition you'll put it out in a cheaper edition, maybe yeah. a, a quality paperback. And then maybe it'll fall back into one of these series, you know, back in the, um, you know, around 1900 to 1960, you would stick it in this series. Uh, and the, each time it's reissued, it's cheaper. And ultimately it ends up at the bottom of the, you know, this whole process, which is, yeah potentially the books that are sitting, you know, at modern bookstores when you walk in the classics and stuff that are like, you know, 199. So it's a publisher trying to squeeze a little bit more out of not only the investment they made in the author, but the investment, at least previous the digital world, and that's the world of this, this mm -hmm. collection, the investment they made in plates, printing plates, and right, that's often what's the big expense here. So if you could sort of reprint it, maybe using the original plates or maybe resetting it once and then issue it in one of your series, but then issue it in even a cheaper series using the mm -hmm. same plates. And then you could sell those plates to somebody else who was looking to reprint that book in their series or rent them. So you see a lot of what I've seen is a lot of um, renting of plates or selling oh. of them. Right. So if you think about it, the valuable piece here, pre-digital world, the part that took the most, the biggest investment outside of that original investment in the author and yeah. an editor and all that work. But once that was done, it was this tangible printing plate. And so once you had that, you could reprint and reprint and reprint. And as the plates wore out, a lot of the real cheap series, the ones that were like a dime at... Woolworths or whatever, when you open them up, they are not only the small type you talk about, but also like blurred yes. because they have been reprinted <laughs> so many times that they've worn the metal oh. plates out. There was a story, this reader's library is was a notorious hardcover, really cheap dime at Woolworths. It was a British series that was also published in the US. Uh, there was, I forget if it was Lorna Dune uh which is one of the you know out of copyright classics that got reprinted by lots of people there was a printing error and the first half was lorna dune and the second half was three musketeers <laughs> and they printed uh, over two hundred thousand of them because again the idea right is you print a lot because that brings the individual price down and then yeah. you just put them out there and if they're not selling you you put them out there even cheaper, but the um, person who was uh, uh, running the company that was printing these said they had noticed this error after they had printed them all and shipped them off. Uh, somebody came back, uh, one of the one of their salespeople, and said of this error, and he said he just said, "Well, let's go with it. See if anybody says anything." And nobody ever said anything. <laughs> so, two hundred thousand copies. Yeah. So people are buying it for. I don't know what happens when you buy, you know, in this case, when you'd walk into a bookstore in 1935, you have a little bit of money. There's yeah. something good about, there's a good feeling about that's that buying thing, but it certainly is 
uh, feels more justified than buying cigarettes or, you know, if you feel like this is something that can make my life better. Uh, so there's, there's an appeal to it that I don't know. And then, you know, displaying it at home uh, as a symbol of your um, educatedness. Uh, but I don't know if people actually read them. And I think that's the case yeah. with a lot of these series is a lot of them I'll find with a bookmark, like maybe 20 pages in. <laughs> yeah. That's sort of yellowed. So right, it's a, give it the old, but I, I, I do think that a lot of them were purchased with very positive intention. Uh, and it was a world where a normal person could have a book and could be educated. Uh, and it wasn't that long ago where that was just not the case. So th this era here, like late 1800s through mid 1900s really was an era of rapidly increasing literacy of the incomes of people being big enough enough to support inexpensive books, which these mm -hmm. were because, right, they had ratcheted down the, they were the, the last squeezing out the last drops of profit, uh, trying to get them out there uh, and be purchasable. And so, right, it, it, it was a, a moment that was, um, you know, it's sort of interestingly documented by these series and the, I mean, the, the diversity of them is, is even for English language, primarily British in the United States. I mean, almost 500 series and there are a lot of commonalities, but there's a lot of bizarre, I mean, odd things and differences that anything you do, anything you start to dive into in a little bit more detail, right? It, yeah. Like maps, uh, there's all this sort of explosion, even the most mundane things, uh, this sort of explosion of ideas and social connections and all that. So, you know, it does fit in with uh, maybe my tendency to find what seem like mundane things like maps or reprint series books from the 20th century. Uh, you look at something that is like people will go, yeah, so what? But then you really get into it and it's uh, amazingly complicated. It has lots of neat stories that somehow seem meaningful. Do you have a either a Holy Grail series or a particular thing? You know, your white whale out there. Is there one book in the series that, yeah, you, it just either costs so much or like I can't justify buying it or you just can't find it. Are you on the hunt for something? Most of these books are really not worth much. Okay. <laughs> uh, people may ask a lot, um, yeah. you know, if you go to, uh, 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 you know, online uh, use books. I would say that I started off with the Modern Library, which is this U.S. series. It was uh, bought from, it was started by uh, Boney and Livright, which was a publisher, pretty influential publisher in the early part of the 20th century. Uh, they were not really good with uh, managing their finances and they sold it to um, uh, the guys that would originally would, would take that series and then build Random House around it. Wow. Uh, Bennett Cerf, uh, Donald Klopfer, Klopfer. So that series was sort of my first. And one of the, the, of course, one of the things when you're buying a series is you want some of the earliest editions yeah. and in a dust jacket. And so this one's going back to 1917. And so some of the, the holy grails would be that first set of, of, of titles that were issued or those that were issued under before it became, you know, the modern, modern library was sold off. So any of those, those Boney and Livright um, uh, uh, public, you know, imprint and with dust jackets on it are just really, really scarce. But I, I'm not, I'm an academic, so I don't make much money. <laughs> so ultimately I've gotten like 13 of them and I don't think I've paid anything more than um, maybe $10 a piece. Okay. Uh, yeah. And so you can't, what's nice about this is the, 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 the white whale or the Holy grail, the white grail, Holy whale, I Holy whale. <laughs> the Holy whales, the thing is they're out there. And that's one of the cool things about it is it's not like that first edition of, of, of you know catcher in the rye or something like you know fitzgerald first it's like they're out there and they're probably sitting on like a thrift store shelf somewhere 
And that, that's a really cool thing about the, um, these kind of series is that there can be things that are exceedingly rare, yet they're really not worth that much, but you still get the joy of knowing you have something of which there are probably only a handful in the world. Um, in particular, when it gets down to having the dust jackets on it. So I can go through and, you know, point those and those somehow are very satisfactory objects. Yeah. Just that it's not only the book, which the books can survive, but it's the book with this thin piece of paper over the, the top of it. Uh, and that it's still, you can still find them and they're relatively cheap, but still horrifyingly rare. I don't know. That's a nice combination for a moderately poor person like myself. Yeah, because I would say, you know, having having grown up with the intermittent growth, growth from nothing to something and then seeing how the used market for almost everything has changed completely, where now people can just scan with their phone. So you can go to a thrift store and there can be a book there sitting for $3. Somebody can scan on their phone, see it's worth 10 So somebody just walks through and scan, 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 picks that stuff up and goes and resells it on the internet. This idea that there yeah. might still be those little pockets of, if you're interested in collecting this, it can be rare without being worth a ton of money online. So I, I do like the fact that that still yeah. exists. Yeah. Yeah, you can, uh, you know, I would say out of these nearly 500 series, uh, I'll look when I'm doing my little research into the uh, individual page for these series. And mm -hmm. typically I'll check uh, a couple of key used uh, book websites. And I will often find that, you know, maybe there's one other listing of a book from the series and a dust jacket. A lot of times there's no listings. Uh, and those websites, dealers are pretty now pretty good at getting their inventory up there. Yeah. I do think. I still will go into used bookstores where a lot of particular older bookstores where a lot of stuff is still sitting on the shelf and it hasn't been put into the system. So that's where you find things. But, you know, in the case of a lot of these series, nobody's collecting them and they're not out there. Even if people were collecting them, they're just gone. And so it is satisfying to look over and see a shelf of all these you know, I don't know if I want to call them all holy grails, but <laughs> they are rare things that that are largely of no interest to anybody, but are actually really interesting if you just, you know, poke into their history a little bit. Are there any, how many of them, these classics, again, when you first started, it was, I think it's interesting you picked a book. I read that in high school. I should get this again. Maybe I'll reread it or maybe I like it so much I want to hold on to it. How many of these books do you think you actually wound up over the years? You would actually pull up and read, especially when you were doing it early on. Um, so that's one of those things, like when I say, oh yeah, I'm, you know, a book on making maps and oh, haven't all the maps been made but when people walk in they're like oh first of all there's the people who don't even look at them sure now the way my house is set up there's a picture it's a little hard to see the context on the series of series website but it's this floor to ceiling i don't know 10 feet wide eight feet wide wall of books of a certain size that are just hit you in the face right it's bad feng shui putting books where people can <laughs> right. see them when they walk in. It's supposed yeah. to be like hitting them with lots of knives. Um, but I like that. So I can see them sort of, you know, um, some people sort of very pained. Uh, some don't seem to notice them. Some do notice them and don't say anything. Others, the first thing they'll say is, have you read all those? Of course. And, uh, no. <laughs> uh, like the tradition, I often will dip into these. And then, oh, the type is a little too small. Yeah. Getting harder to read here over the years. Or there's a style of writing that we've lost the ability to, um, a style of writing that we've lost the ability to read. It's like kids can't read cursive anymore. Yeah. Uh, and it's good in a way because it does let you sort of wrap your head around a, 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 maybe a different style of writing, even things that were popular 50, 60 years ago. Sometimes it's hard to read. So I will dip into them. I can't say that I go through and I've made a comprehensive reading of, you know, blah, blah, blah. Uh, but but I've always thought it's nice to have books around that you haven't read. It feels like a real library. Yeah. Uh, if a library was only things you have read. Well, then it's, I don't know, they're like, it's like having a bunch of 
uh, I don't know, banana peels around. It's like <laughs> you already ate the banana, the, the peel itself. It's like, so I, I feel like this is, these are holding all these little nuggets of stuff that maybe it's a part of my, I hope someday to maybe look at these things, but if not, it's sort of a exterior brain, you know, back up. It's holding a lot of stuff that I don't have time to deal with. Uh, and I do that with academic books too. I, if I find something that's really interesting, it's like, this looks like the coolest thing in the world. I just buy it. So I have it. I feel like, all right, I should know about this. And then I put it in a pile and then I stare at it and I go, it feels really good to know that that bit of knowledge, that information, even if I'm not reading it, I have it in my orbit here and I could go and read it. Or if a situation came up where I wish I knew more about this, I can then go pull it down and dig into it. So there's satisfaction in having this auxiliary um, brain, right? This is like old, uh, you know, storage pre uh pre-digital storage devices these are all like little usb drives full of stuff uh, that you can then go back and dig into if if you wish okay my last so question i, I gotta no, go say ahead. the last time i read through all one of these yeah. was a long time ago but i will typically read a little bit of them when i when i get one and occasionally pull something off the shelf one of our friends their name their dog Lorca after the Spanish poet. So I pulled out the um, new direction series copy of his um, poetry, which is in Spanish and in English translation and just read a little bit because they named their dog after him. So I thought, okay, well, I guess that's a good enough reason to know a little bit about who (laughs) he was and what he did. so it's really nice when you're having a conversation and drinking wine and eating cheese and it's like, oh yeah, I've got it here. And then, you know, read a couple of, of pages and it's okay. I got to, now I know a little bit more and I could read the whole thing if I wanted. So I think you do that with the internet anymore, but there's something about yeah. these objects that is a lot for me, at least maybe it's just my age and stuff. I, I like these objects as opposed to a digital file on the web. Yeah, there's a lot of things. I mean, a lot of these things are now public domain. In fact, the vast majority of these things we're talking about in these series are all public domain. Many of them already in many different versions on Gutenberg or other websites. But still, there's something about sitting and scrolling through a screen, a solid wall of text versus picking up a book and sitting down or laying down and reading it. It, Yeah. So I don't, again, I'm with you. I don't know if it's because I'm older or because, you know, it's actually a better experience and it will, you know, people will continue to do this with these old books that they could just get for free. Yeah, I, I know you can save various sites that have the free books. You can yes. save, you have a library, and then you can make that available to other people to see the stuff you have and all that. But uh, so, but the, but the, the objects themselves, and that's one of the things where I include a lot of scans and things of these books. Yes, which I like, yes. Um, they really are interesting objects, and it is a... I guess it's a um, gesture to the object itself. This is, um, I forget the guy's name. He's a literary something or other, but he call, talks about paratexts. Uh, I mean, there's a text, say, um, I don't know, Charles Dickens' um, novel. But then there's the paratext, which is all the other stuff that surrounds what could be just the extracted digital text from that. In other words, the paper, the way it was formatted, the typeface that was used, the original many editions that were serial and paperbacks, the advertising that went on around it, the people who were involved in um, selling them and then where they sold them, uh, were there, you know, book displays how were they set up to catch people's attention did they put them at train stations in england did they put them at woolworths in the united states so that whole sort of idea of the paratext is everything around it that's really an interesting thing about books you can you know i don't know you can you can read that dickens online but what you're missing is the package 
you're missing the book itself, the format, the dust jacket, knowing about the publisher, knowing about where it was sold, the bits and pieces like the bookmark 20 pages in, maybe a ticket from a train, right? That stuff is, for me, as interesting as the text itself. And that's why owning these objects, I think, is kind of cool. Uh, there's similar things in the digital world, I guess. Uh, just it's, it's a different kind of um, format. It just doesn't, you know, it's not the same by any means. So I like that idea of, of I'm sort of paratext, but very physical paratext. It's like the object, the dust jacket. Uh, people are like, why do you care so much about the dust jacket? It's like, I don't know. It's just the book came with it. <laughs> if I'm going to collect them, I want all the pieces that it came with. It's, you know, and then, but there are other people who are willing to go, you know, that, that free copy that's missing a cover and right. Uh, it's like, it's, oh, it's such a good book. And for me, it's like, I want the whole package and I want to know about how this was advertised and what it looked like on a shelf. A true, a true collector wants the whole thing. They don't just want, you know, the action figure. They want the box the action figure came in. I mean. Yeah, yeah. Or now the shift with, um, you know, collectible cars that have them in original right. condition as opposed to restored. And that's been the case. I mean, books for years were, had all sorts of work done on them. Uh, to restore them, or they would rip off the binding earlier on and stick them on a fancy binding and put them in a box. And now it's copies of books that have been unrestored that are in very good condition are the ones that are just crazy prices. So yeah, that, you know, smacks a little bit of that authenticity or originality. I mean, I think it's a good thing. Um, I don't know. I think you know, I feel bad for the people who restore books or really like restoring cars when they're like, leave it, don't restore it. These raise all sorts of issues about what's appealing and how that sort of shifts and moves over time. And uh, yeah, I don't know. And like I said, I feel like I'm in this mode where I'm old enough that I'm on this divide between the non-digital and the digital world. And I don't really have a sense of what this means to younger folks, my kids don't seem interested in them very much, <laughs> I was gonna ask which you. is why I put together the dead list and, you know, this website. So it's like, okay, this is what it's about. So you can do something with it that is not completely embarrassing. Um, but then they're also, I mean, my kid is, my oldest is into Legos and particularly Star Wars Legos. And, um, you know, he's 21. And I saw him, he was home here in between his semester abroad and an internship and he's sitting here on the sofa staring up at the um i don't know what it is it's some big monstrous star wars lego set okay just yeah gazing at it with longing and love uh and i sit on the opposite <laughs> side and just gaze at my books with longing and love so i think you know objects still have that appeal um it may not be the you know the objects i'm staring at that uh, my kids find to be appealing, but hopefully everybody has something, right? Those things that just make them feel good 